On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Greg Hoy. He's uh, calling from California, and I and I hope your temperatures have gone down a little bit since Sunday. Uh, he's got <laughs> an album out called Cacophony, and that is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, if you'll allow me, I'm going to read verbatim from your bio on your website because it's so well written. <laughs> okay. And it's a tongue hope twister. So, so hold on. Here we go. Greg Hoy is many things. He's a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, a recording producer, a recording engineer, something of a marketing guru, a jingle and sound composer and producer, a people engineer in the tech world, an art director, and a label owner. But when you boil it all down, he's really just a guy in a band. That, there you go. Is, that, is, is that kind of like that uh, Julia Roberts movie where she goes, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her? <laughs> sure. I like that. I'll take the Julia Roberts comparison. That was uh, oh, well, Lauren, Lauren Berman. I want to say Lauren Berman wrote that bio. He's an awesome artist out of New York City. So he, was, he interviewed me one day and put together a very nice uh, verbosely written bio for me. Well, I'll give all the credit to Lauren. He writes a great bio, and maybe he has a future in writing romantic comedies. <laughs> maybe can tell him that Julia Roberts me. can get together. Maybe we could both be in it. I know. She does, doesn't she need to do a movie where instead of, like, a, a guy in a bookstore, she falls in love with an indie rocker? I, I'm there for that. I'm ready. Sign <laughs> me up. Well, we're going to talk a lot about your music, but, you know, when when I see someone that wears all the hats like you do, which sure. in, in today's day and age, technology lets us wear a lot of hats. But, you know, we, we're always told, oh, just pick one thing and you can't do anything mm. else in life. But we really can. A lot of people have aptitude for a lot of things. But I'm wondering, what were you like as a child? Did you have this predisposition to do like a million things at once? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I was, I think as a child, I was one of those people that loved being around other people, taking that energy and then sitting alone and making something. Like I remember having these Legos and bristle blocks and, and I remember working on it when I was in like second grade, I tried to make a, a board game <laughs> and I remember it was sort of based. I got a, a couple of giant pieces of cardboard and I, it was like there were planets and I had, I had cut these styrofoam balls in half and painted them so I had the nine planets and you would roll the dice and and I always sort of had different sort of things I was making especially with my hands and um, being a child of the 80s and 90s when the computer and got saving up to buy my first Atari 2600 video game system uh, it just sort of blew my mind like the idea that people could make this stuff that was so fun and engaging and it sort mm -hmm. of led to this life of seeking that out were you like into rubik's cube mm -hmm. i had like, the like rubik's how, how... cube i had there was there was one that was like a triangle do you remember that one it was a same concept yeah yeah i kind of do yeah <laughs> there were like I, a I lot couldn't of do, i couldn't do the triangle one you, you were yeah you you were probably better than i would have ever been at that but what's kind of cool <laughs> is I, I wish i had saved mine and sold it on ebay Oh, I'll bet they're going for a lot of money, the original ones. Well, you know, this child of the 80s thing, 
I'm a little bit older than you. So when I'm thinking of 80s, I'm thinking of, you know, coming of age in my 20s. But I I think there's so much nostalgia now that even people who weren't born in the 80s, they can't, you know, when people say, oh, I wish I was born in the 80s. That's when all the cool music came out. I mean, do you ever feel like that? Well, I was just talking with some of my bandmates about this. And I think when you're, whenever you come into your, let's say, cultural awakening, for lack of a better phrase, you're always looking back on whatever is influencing the present. So when I was growing up, like the 70s seemed so cool. Like I remember thinking, if I had a time machine, I'd go back to 1976 and see Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and and Genesis when they first got rid of Peter Gabriel and like all my favorite bands that I was growing up with at the time. So I well, think it what makes sense that what if, people now, I was just going to say people now are looking back in the same way I did, but it's just it, time has sort of changed. And the idea that you can access all these different things with the internet, it's, it's kind of amazing. Right. And I think you're right that there's a special memory when you come of age. It's not that, the music's necessarily better, but you are at that impressionable age where it made such, you know, this lasting impression on you. Right. I think although, my best example although, is my best. But, but, oh, but I was going to say that being said, though, Led Zeppelin is special. I mean, when you talk about, you know, uh, classic bands, there there were special pockets, and you said like 1976. That's a special year that will never be duplicated. Right. What I was going to say is I think that they, you sort of glom on to the things that are meaningful to you and then you work backwards. For me, at least, I wanted to find the origin story of all those bands. And they, most of them were 70s bands at that point. Mm-hmm. So how did you start to do that? Because we were talking about, you know, pre-internet and all that, and, you know, now you can just look up anything. But what do we do before Wikipedia and all that? Like, so when you're a kid and you get into Led Zeppelin, did you like yeah. buy Cream magazine or did you go to the library? How, how did you, you know, learn about these bands? Yeah, I think it was a few things. I, my, my family, I had all older siblings and they had a pretty, and a mom, they all had a pretty big record collection. So I was the, the kid that would sit and read liner notes on LP records and look at art. And, and I, I, did a, I did a double LP a few years ago simply because I wanted to have a gatefold in my catalog <laughs> from those oh, wow. times of sitting down of sitting down in front of, um, you know, we had one of those big console record players that were so popular in the 60s and 70s. And that did lead to, you know, all of the magazines, Rolling Stone, Spin. Uh, and then I got into the stuff that was coming from England, which was clearly cooler because it was harder to find, right? You had to go to like the special section of the record store or bookstore and look for the imported magazines. They were also way more expensive, I remember, like Mojo and um, I forget, there was another one, AP maybe or something like that. Oh, NME, I think it was. So like I think New it was Musical weird... Express. Yeah. Yes, NME. I think it was this weird, uh, I had to, as a child, I had to connect the dots. So when I found something I was really interested in, I couldn't just go to one spot to find out about it, which in this case is your phone or your you know, computer. I had to actually seek out, oftentimes, most of the time physically, uh, 
you know, literature or history or writing about whatever that topic was. And for me, it was always, you know, when I found out about music writing and Lester Bangs, I mean, that just blew my mind. Like there were people that were actually writing about rock music. That to me was like, wow. Well, also on your website, you say the first single record you bought with your own money was Cars by Gary Newman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you have good taste. I mean, that's a good first. <laughs> Thanks. I, it was interesting because I remember hearing it on the radio, and I I had some allowance. Who knows, fifty cents a week. And I remember saving up a couple bucks and giving it to my sister and saying, "Will you buy me this record?" And I still have it. Um, it's well worn, and I don't DJ with it anymore. I have another copy of the Pleasure Principle that I use for that, but. I remember being blown away by that song. And I think in retrospect, with everything that was going on in music, that's a pretty great song to, 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 to look back on to say, I got a little bit of everything out of that song. It was a little punk. It was a little weird electronic. It was a little rock. And it was the weirdo up front talking about pretty much what we're going through right now, which is living in isolation. Right, and I also had a bit of that sort of industrial performance art feel to it. For sure. And I think as the years have gone by, the thing that makes that song still stand out is live instruments, live drums, live mm -hmm. bass. Yes. Well, kind of like you, because you go by many different names, you know, sometimes Greg Hoy, but you've got Greg Hoy and the boys didn't Gary Newman mm -hmm. also have Gary Newman and the something, something, something? Yeah, the two-boy army. The two-boy um, army, yeah. Yeah. So did that, um, that influence you to have like a Greg Hoy and the something? Wow, that, Kelly, that is an amazing insight you just gave me. That is, a, that is, <laughs> that is very interesting. I, I, <laughs> you know, I was also a fan of the Jimi Hendrix experience, and... Um, I think for a while in New York, uh, in the 2000s, I was going by the Greg Hoy Annihilation, which kind of implied I was a heavier band than I really was, because we were never super punk. We were kind of like punk light, I would say. Pop punk. Yeah, that's been thrown out a lot. I think we've moved, at least we, I, I think my music has moved more into, you know, middle-aged singer-songwriter with a touch of distortion. <laughs> That's good. We need more middle-aged singer-songwriters. I know. Don't, don't. I think I had, well, good. I was going to say, everything's so youth-oriented. I was actually talking with someone the other day about this. We need more perspectives out there. You know, young people write brilliant music. You know, you, some people peak when they're 19 or 20. But at the same time, there's so much wasted wisdom out there. We need to hear mm. people who have lived a little life and then write songs about it. I really like that. And I want to just briefly tell you about this experience I had recently related to that. I was fortunate enough to be a part of a, a, a singer songwriter conference, uh, which was uh, basically a meeting with a lot of the music supervisors for all the networks. And it was myself and about 29 other artists it was a long weekend um, in Ventura, California. And I had that moment that, that maybe many people my age and older have where you realize you're being lapped a little bit by younger generations in some shape or form. And what I realized during that was 
exactly what you said. As much as I at first felt very like a fish out of water for not having uh, slick produced pop music to present to these music supervisors for all the networks, I realized I had <laughs> this other thing, which was years of touring experience, hundreds of songs under my belt. And, and honestly, it was also a little, I had a little less, um, I was a little less precious in showing up with my music. I was a little more interested in listening to what the other artists had to say and what the music supervisors had to say. And not necessarily in a commerce way, which I do feel like a lot of people uh, that were there were trying to do. They were really trying to sell their songs. It was more about the perception of why do you make music at all? And that was very powerful. It was a very powerful weekend for me. Well, when you do think of like the preciousness, you know, when you create something, it's like your baby, you feel passionate, but at the same time, it is, you know, show business. It it is, you know, something that people want to make money off of and they, you know, make decisions based on that. So don't you think the thing a young artist needs to learn is separate, you know, who you are from your work. Like if someone has feedback about one of your songs and it's not all positive, it doesn't mean you're a, a bad person. And so many artists, you know, they get so wrapped up in, you know, the song is their self-image. So, so it sounds like you at a certain point realize that early on, or <laughs> or is it still hurtful when you say get some feedback and say, well, maybe the bridge could be a little shorter or, you know, the, the chorus is a little uh, looser. I don't know. But, but how right, do you no. respond to that? I mean, do you like getting feedback? Yeah, Kelly, I think actually these are great questions. And it's, <clears throat> I think it is, there's a few things to unpack. I think one is so many young artists are growing up with their image being first. So their, their pictures on Instagram or TikTok while they're working on a song. I am grateful I didn't have to go through that. I am grateful that I had so much time sitting alone, usually with other people, uh, at least in my young days, reacting, responding, communicating, getting feedback from the bass player or the drummer. Um, as a matter of fact, we had a rehearsal last night for a tour that's coming up at the, at the end of summer. And we were like, everyone was throwing in two their two cents about things that should change about the song. Should we shorten this bridge? Should we add this part? And I think when you have that environment, um, when you're not isolated, which I, I, I feel that, that, that that's a thing that's going on right now, especially with COVID and pandemic and things like that, you learn that feedback is this huge gift. And it's also, it always, always makes things better if you're willing to listen to other people. And being in a band is all about listening to other people. So the, the last thing I'll say is I think a lot of artists who are, you know, incubating by themselves, as great as that is, the, the piece that's missing is the collaboration and the communication. And I think that comes last oftentimes, especially for people that never tour or never perform live, which I've met a lot of artists that don't. And, and I think now with technology, like you're saying, you know, there's a lot of these one man producer, singer, um, EDM artists, you know, they can do all this, you know, alone. And maybe right. even if they have a good output, there is a certain loneliness where if you're in a band, you know, you don't get quite singled out as much in a band, you know, you have to kind of learn. It's like, 
it's the difference between being an only child and then growing up in a big family. Right. Like, like when you're right. in a big family, you kind of learn to share the attention with everyone. And it seems like a band, you don't reach, you know, the peaks of superstardom, you know, when you're in a band, like, you know, um, like a Justin Timberlake on his own, as opposed to sharing, you know, the spotlight with the boy band, which I think was in sync. I don't know why I made the Justin yep. Timberlake comparison, but <laughs> at a certain point, you know, it is kind of lonely to just be the solo artist. There is this specialness when you're with a band. And part of it is the fact it's not just all about your ego. It's that you're sharing it and you're all working together yep. kind of mindlessly. Maybe it's the hive mind kind of thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, my own experience is years for years I was in bands and when in 2003 I made a record and I played every instrument myself so I did it by myself um it got a lot of great press speaking of press the village voice put it in their best of in New York City um one of the songs off it ended up on national television but I still wanted to perform those songs live and it sort of set me off on a path of sometimes I'd love to be in a studio like this latest record cacophony I'm in the studio with uh, the bass player and the drummer and we're cutting this, this song organically live. And sometimes I like making the records by myself and then giving them to the, the variety of amazing musicians that, that uh, you know, are, are great to say yes to playing with me and they get to learn these parts. And, and then the songs become something even better because I, as much as I love playing all the instruments, sometimes I love hearing what my bass player friends or my drum friends that play with me will, will add to to these little nuggets of, of melody and rhythm. Well, what do you think with all the reality singing competitions, which we've had for quite a while now, it's been a couple decades since, you know, American Idol hit. And I think people are pretty sophisticated with it. But I think one thing that it really changed was on all these shows, it's just one singer going out singing either with a backing track or if there is any live music, they're, they're pretty hidden. And it just gives us this sense of everything is the vocalist. Don't you think that's yeah. taken us away a little bit from showing, though, it's kind of a collaborative band kind of thing? It's funny. My first thought was television in general. When I think about growing up with Dick Clark and American Bandstand and Soul Train, and you'd see these artists go on and... I don't know if everyone saw it, but I always knew they were, they were aping it. You know, they were just sitting there mm -hmm. mouthing the words or pretending to play the drums. So I think there's something to be said for television and music on television isn't to me the interactive, organic, real-time feedback playing a live show uh, reason that I do music. So I see them as sort of two separate things. And I think that mm -hmm. it's great. I think it's great if, if somebody is inspired watching one of those shows, much like I was inspired hearing a song, and if they decide to go deeper down the rabbit hole to the point where they become a songwriter, I think it's wonderful. So it's, I think that there's, it's two separate things for me personally, but I think the inspiration can come from anywhere for someone to learn to create and make music. Well, what do you think of the evolution of Miley Cyrus? Because she started out you know, the Disney star and then pop star. But as she's evolved, it seems like, especially her last album, she's really more of this band aesthetic and the harder edge. Do you think some people out there think, you know what, I don't want it to be this canned singer. 
you know, I want to interact with musicians. Yeah, I think I think she's a great example of someone that has shown she can evolve as an artist. Um, I actually quite enjoy her music. I enjoy her as an artist. I enjoy her playing both sides of that sort of uh, being a celebrity and versus being a musician coin. Um, I think there's nothing but positive that comes out of people witnessing that. And I'll, I'm going to bet that she, because she was a child star, she probably lost as many fans as she's gained recently. I think, you know, people also evolve with musicians. Like I think about careerist musicians that I love, like Beck or Prince, all the one word people, right? Like Madonna. And they all go through many, many phases of who they are presenting to the public. And people can kind of jump in and jump out uh, as it makes sense to them personally. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think we'd be talking about Justin Timberlake and Miley Cyrus? I in relationship to your music? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, no, I... <laughs> I think I think there's a couple things. I think one is longevity is is real. I think that I when I set out to become who I am today, I never thought I would stop. And it didn't depend on financial success or Spotify playlist numbers or all the things that, you know, I think oftentimes people can focus on as a data point for success. I think that when I listen to one, any artist that, that might surprise me, like I thought Justin Timberlake's record, what was it called? Sexy back or whatever. It came out a while mm-hmm. ago. Now I yeah. thought it was amazing. I'm like, listen to this melody, listen to the, the freshness of this, this, this whole, that whole LP was great to me. And I, I remember listening to it often. Like it was like in my rotation and, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of, of, of slick, commercial pop uh, by any means but the depth of that record it it stuck with me and Mm -hmm. to the point where when his new record came out i listened to it and i said eh, i don't like this (laughs) Uh. so i i do think that i think that the quality uh transcends uh genre and transcends um the commerce Mm -hmm. i guess is probably the best way i could think of it and and it's good you never want to get to a point in your life when you can't appreciate pop music or when a pop musician does something really creative or creates a fresh sound, even if you're a rocker, don't you think it's nice to be open to lots of influences? Yeah, I think I'm as influenced by, you know, some of the hip hop stuff that my nephew turns me on to, uh, especially from a songwriting and production standpoint, there's always more to learn. Mm -hmm. Well, getting back to your music, and the Cacophony album, which, by the way, <laughs> did you release that on vinyl? Yeah, it came out on uh, gold vinyl, actually, in September. And um, the first side was the first EP on the streaming services. And the second side just came out this week. So we split it up uh, digitally as uh, each side as a different EP. And when you say gold vinyl, is that like a solid gold or is that like a transparent yellow gold? It's a bit opaque, as I believe the, uh, the, the vinyl makers like to call it. So you can kind of see through it a little bit. Nice, Just give nice. me your address. I'll send you one. Well, yeah. <laughs> then, then I'll have to shell out a few hundred bucks for a turntable. No. No, I, I, oh, I have friends it, with what a, what a great time to rediscover your turntable in a vinyl collection. <laughs> 2021. 
But you know those uh, the ones they have that they're made to look like an old time radio, but you can put like a record yeah. on it. You can put like a cassette tape or a CD in it. I used to have one of those. I yeah. think I should just break down and get one of those again. <laughs> you could, but you know, as a vinyl fanatic, I highly recommend a better, a slightly better turntable, which will treat your vinyl much better than a Crosley, which is, I think, one of the brands that is very shall we say, uh, one piece. Well, do you remember the clothes and play record player? There was almost like a child's toy. Yeah. With the plastic, everything was really plastic and shiny and like blue or yellow. Yeah. And then you just close the lid. And I think the needle was part of the lid. It was on top of the lid. Yep. That had to just (laughs) destroy records. That had to be a record destroyer. Oh my God. Cause that's when like, you know, you would, carry it like a suitcase to your friend's house and all the stacks of <laughs> records that you just stacked without the covers and you would just like scratch them up and throw them like frisbees at each other. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to see that vinyl is still so vital. And and we also did cassettes for our last tour and boy, did we sell a lot of those? I think people oh. are buying them more as a nostalgia slash keepsake, not necessarily mm-hmm. to listen to them. They buy the cassette and then they go online and listen to the album. And you know, if you have an old car, a lot of cars still have cassette players in them. Right. And some people have told me that they've come up to buy one. They're like, Hey, my Honda still has a tape deck. Oh my God. Well, see, that's the cool thing with streaming music. You can escape that in your car and I think it's so cool yep. to have a stash of music in your car that you only listen to in your car, and it's going to be this physical media product. Yeah, I have a friend who has like a 10-disc CD changer in his trunk, and he made all mix CDs for it. So he'll just hit play, and he knows it's all music he likes. That's cool. There's something just uh, reassuring to have music that you know you like. 100%. I think... I usually go to Spotify to listen to stuff that I have on vinyl because I'm somewhere where I'm not with my record player. And it's a different listening experience. And I think sometimes it's great, especially to discover new stuff when someone just sends me a link and they're like, hey, check this out. And then if I really like it and it is on vinyl, I'll probably end up buying it. It happened with uh, this country artist I'm really digging right now. Her name is Nikki Lake. I don't know if you're familiar with her, if you're a country fan at all. She's kind of like this blend of sort of outlaw 80s country mixed with a little bit of like you know classic country but it's done in this way that is just so approachable and so the songwriting's incredible oh that sounds really good i'll have to check that out do you remember when gretchen wilson came out back in the 2000s she kind of brought that outlaw country back i think that that there's still a, a huge space for great country that's a little painting outside the Nashville slick pop lines. Exactly. No, uh, my parents were big country fans and uh, kind of purists. So to them, you know, anything from the past 35 years, they, they think is, you know, too pop. <laughs> Did they enjoy like uh, Waylon Jennings and Merle Haggard? Were they into that side of country? Well, very much, but I mean, even farther back, like original Hank Williams and Tammy sure. Wynette, Loretta Lynn, Roy A. Cuff, yeah. you know, all, all that yeah. stuff. So, Ernest Tubb. Nice. Got to check out yeah, some we, Ernest Tubb music. 
we have a bunch of country, old country records here, and every once in a while, usually Sundays seem to be the old country day. Like, we're kind of chilling out, my wife and my daughter and the dogs and I, and we'll put on uh, Merle Haggard's, like, Back to the Bar Rooms or, uh, you know, Lonesome Ornery and Mean by Waylon Jennings. And it's just, there's something about that mid-tempo, laid-back, you just get that feeling of a, of a like, fun bar room somewhere in the middle of who knows where central us usa it's it's fantastic mm-hmm. roadside honky tonk usa <laughs> i think we're playing a few of those in uh, august and september to be honest and i'm pretty i'm pretty excited about it oh my god they'll either love you or chase you out of town <laughs> it's gonna be like that scene in the blues brothers where they're just throwing bottles at us Pretty much. Remember that uh, Patrick Swayze Roadhouse? Oh, classic. I watch it every time it's on. We quote it all the time in the van when we're driving. We'll be like, pain don't hurt. (laughs) And, you know, the band plays behind that chain link fence material. Right. I would kill to do a gig behind chain link fence. I have yet to do that in my career, and I hope to show up at some roadhouse in the next few months and have that happen. I doubt it will, but who knows? So you make your ultimate mixtape for your car. What would be like your five to ten songs you would put on it? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think for driving, I'm going to go with some things that are a little more upbeat. Um, If we're going song to song, I mean, I'd probably throw... I think I'd probably throw like... The first song I came up with was Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. And I think the reason I say that is it might be the first song I ever listened to on cassette while I was driving in a car. Like you remember those cassette Walkmans. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the back seat with my parents listening to that. I'd probably throw some public enemy on there because I actually really love uh, late eighties, early nineties, public enemy, maybe like uh, fight the power or um, by the time I get to Arizona, um, probably a good eighties summer song like everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears which i think might oh, yeah. be the, the ultimate the ultimate summer driving song uh mm-hmm. to me um we cover that every once in a while and it's a good cover because everyone loves that song that's a great song. um it really is and it you know it's got so many great elements and it, it sort of transcends the 80s production like you can still listen to it now and it feels modern even though the rest that of that intro, seems to be that intro bit. that oh. uh, it grabs you and then it just it, it it progresses and there's just so many hooks and there's just so much mood to it. They take a lot of moments in that song uh, to, especially around the lyrics. Sometimes the lyrics are very uh, following the rhythm of the song, and then there's other times where there's like an interesting offbeat or an interesting uh, lift rhythmically that they do with the vocal that just keeps that song going. I'd probably have to put a Beck song on there. A Beck? Well, you need well. a one-word a one word artist song, of course, Beck. <laughs> but, which, but, but, but don't say the most obvious, Beck. Well, what's like your favorite, no, I, less obvious? Uh, I think my favorite Beck record is called the information. So it'd probably be like black tambourine or, um, I think I'm in love is a great song. Um, we're going to try to cover black tambourine on this tour because we are playing a couple two hour sets. So we need a few little covers. Nice. 
And then I'd probably go with Prince because uh, When Doves Cry was the second single that I ever bought. And it was, I remember getting it. I still have it. It was purple. <laughs> and wow. um, okay. yeah, I, I think When Doves Cry, I think it's funny thinking about these songs. When Doves Cry doesn't have a, a bass line and everybody wants to rule the world starts without bass. So I think both of those things kind of add gravitas. Because they, the songs that don't seem to have a lot of low end or they use it sparingly, they, they kind of hold on to you because you're waiting for it to ground. You're waiting for that moment where it brings you back down to the gravity of the earth. I'm thinking about that now. And I think when I drive, I think that's part of what I like about driving is I feel like I'm fighting against gravity in a way. Well, what's that Alanis Morissette song? Uninvited. Remember that back in the 90s? <laughs> I do. How, I do. Because that has just the the rarest kind of pop song where it it's almost just all vocal at first, and and the the yep. music really doesn't kick in till near the end. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example of another song that sort of has a nice slow build. I'm gonna say this too, since we're still talking about the mixtape. I'm gonna say the song that I think was the blueprint for what we're talking about, and that song would be 1981 in the air tonight by Phil Collins. Uh, I feel like that was a, I think that was a single that, especially if you study uh, rock music, that single set a blueprint for so many bands to hold off on the big drum and the big, the big kick in as long as possible. Uh, still holds up 40 years later. Yeah. But if you like that, don't you think as a companion piece, you got to love the song he produced for Frida a couple of years later. I know there's something right. going on. Right. Frida from ABBA, right? Frida from ABBA. And wow, his that's some of his best drum work, I think. I think Phil Collins does fantastic drum work on other people's music. He's a great drummer, but you listen to like Easy Lover with uh, Philip Bailey from uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire. That drum part yeah. is. That drum part is untouchable, that whole song. And then, like, he did some great stuff on Peter Gabriel's solo records and um, Eric Clapton. I think he did some stuff on one of Eric Clapton's records that I recall, even though I'm not a Clapton fan. I remember listening to it because Phil was the drummer. Well, don't you have a perverse fascination? Uh, or maybe I do. Maybe I want you to be complicit <laughs> in my perverse fascination. Okay. But I love when, like, like, a punk or metal band will do, like, a cover of a pop song. And I think a uh, punk band did a cover of, I know there's something going on, or it could have been like a, a metal band from Sweden or something. But do, do you have that, that kind of fascination when you take a, a light, a lighter song and they just make it dark and heavy? Oh, a hundred percent. The first thing I thought of was some metal band did land of confusion by Genesis some years ago. Oh, and I remember oh, wow. it was just, do you remember that? Do you remember that one? That we'll sounds kind of familiar. Done. Just like took the like took that guitar riff, which is in the song in the original, and they just blew it up to like new metal proportions. And I remember thinking, okay, this is cool. I like when bands build on the original when they do a cover. I don't like bands that do covers that are exact. Mm-hmm. Well, how about this whole mashup thing now? And it's another example of technology. When they lay one song over another, like they'll take Lady Gaga and then they'll lay Metallica over it and give her a harder yeah. rock edge. Yeah, I 
actually, Kelly, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> there's um, there's a, a, a out here in San Francisco um, for years, there was a party uh, called Booty. And it was there was a, a, a DJ. I think it was just one person. And that's all he did was mashups. And they were fan. Most of them were fantastic. A lot of them were so much better than the two elements uh, original originally to me. Um, there's another artist who, uh, as I'm from Pittsburgh, I'm going to give him a shout out. His name is Girl Talk, and uh, Greg is his name, and he is the ADHD master of mashups. It's not even mashups. He literally takes four bars of a drum beat and throws like a hip-hop instrumental over it, hip-hop uh, acapella over it. Fantastic stuff. I think when it works, it's incredible. There's often times where I listen to it, and I'm like, okay, this is a disaster. But nine times out of ten, I totally love that stuff. Oh my God! So you're from Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh my God! Was that where George Romero made Night of the Living Dead? I'm gonna go farther. The Do you remember the the tunnel scene? And the the, the original black and white uh, uh, version. They 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 filmed it in a mushroom farm uh, about five miles from where I grew up. Oh my God! A mushroom now, farm. Yeah, and it was an underground. It was like a giant uh, a tunnel. It was, a tunnel is not the word. It was like um like an inside a mountain dome. I'm gonna call it. It was very like the conditions were perfect for growing mushrooms. And there's a scene in the original Black and White Living Dead that they filmed in there, um, which I, I'm not recalling it because God, there's been so many at this point. But and they filmed the the remake, which I loved uh, a couple years ago. They filmed it uh, at one of the malls outside of Pittsburgh, I remember. Now, when you say the mall one, was that the sequel, um, uh, Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, they filmed, so they filmed Romero, the one that Romero originally did, they filmed at one of the malls. I think they did it after hours, I want to say. I might be wrong. This is where Wikipedia will help. And then when mm -hmm. they did that remake a few years ago with like Vin Rames was in it. Oh, okay. Um, do you remember that one? Yeah, I didn't see it, but I remember that they because they remade both the original Night of the Living Dead, then they remade Dawn of the Dead. Okay, I don't remember that sound right? one it was. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they redid a few, and I think Romero, he, a lot of his people worked on the new ones. Um, Tom, the uh, artist guy who's amazing, I forget his last name. He did oh, a lot Tom of the makeup stuff. Yeah, Tom Savini. Savini. Oh my God. Yeah. Now here's the thing. I'm a big horror fan and all this, and, and I hate to admit it. I've never seen the original night of the living dead. Isn't that weird? I mean, as far as, I mean, I think as far as low budget films go, um, you might appreciate it. Cause oh, it I think I will. Feel. Well, you know, when you've yeah. seen so many clips and photos from a movie, you feel like you've already seen it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think this goes back to, being affected by something when you're impressionable. If other things come along, like for me, as an example, it took me years to get into the Rolling Stones. Like people would be like Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones. And I'd be like, I'm not hearing it. And I think it's because when I was growing up, their song that was on the radio was a cover of the Harlem Shuffle. Do you remember when they did that? I do. Yeah. And I was just like, this is terrible. Like it wasn't start me up even. It wasn't satisfaction you know everyone that had come to age with the rolling stones heard like the rolling stones and what i heard was this weird watered down cover version of whatever i forget who originally did that song harlem shuffle so it took me a long time to like reverse engineer uh why the stones were just amazing 
Yeah. Well, I was reading more of your website and the comparisons to your voice that compared you to some um, classic rock singers. Was one of them Mick Jagger that they compared you to? Yeah, I which I didn't. <laughs> David Johansson, Mick Jagger, and I was like, and it was someone I love, Jack Rabbit, who who uh, runs a fantastic magazine, The Big Takeover. If anyone's listening, you should check it out. I was blown away when he said that. The David Johansson I really liked. I thought that was a really good like New York Dolls. Yeah, I hear that in there. I can hear the the back of my throat, like on the bigger stuff, on the louder stuff, I can hear where, where Jack was hearing that too. I think you got to take everything that someone says as, you know, I just, I'm grateful when anyone makes a comparison. I just think it's, it's always something I ne- never thought of 90% of the time. Well, those are good comparisons. You know, it's funny about David Johansson. He's so reinvented himself throughout his career that you, you kind of remind yourself, Oh, yeah, he used to be in the New York Dolls. You know, you kind of forget that after a while. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember when Robert Plant and uh, Jimmy Page did the Honey Drippers in the 80s. There was mm-hmm. a record, and it was all it was all covers of, like, I think it was, like, 40s, like, dance songs, you know, slow dance songs. And then you listen to Robert Plant's solo output over the last 20 or 30 years, and you just, you basically see people that follow their muse, and it's, it's kind of amazing and it's it's so good that that people don't feel that they need to do the same thing over and over and over again mm-hmm. are you a fan of the 70s glam rock i would say t-rex was my gateway um it took mm-hmm. me a while to get into bowie because again let's dance was the record that was out when i was coming of age and um people would talk about Bowie as this thing, you know, and I didn't see it. I just heard a catchy tune with great, like a great guitar part, you know? So I think that glam for me, I got into sweet and, um, you know, some of the bands that other bands were covering, you know, I remember when, mm-hmm. uh, someone covered, I don't know if it was ballroom blitz or something got covered at some point, And then it kind of opened up a lot of that, like glam time. But T-Rex to me is, you know, I still, uh, you know, uh, Electric Warrior is still one of my top LPs for sure. Mm-hmm. How about the Bay City Rollers? Yeah, I never caught them. And I don't think it was as a result of anything nefarious. I think it was just the Bay City Rollers. By the time I heard them, I'd already heard all the hair metal that was ripping them off. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you had Poison and, and Warrant and, 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 and whoever else doing their version of the Bay City Rollers. And I think I, because I was learning guitar at the time, that's what I was learning. Meanwhile, I hated it. Like, I never was a huge fan of, of all of that, even though some of it had amazing melodies. And, and you know, I could still sing probably half a dozen of those songs, like, quit, like don't need nothing but a good time. Like that's a great, mm-hmm. that's an anthem song right there. Um, right. So I, you think know, I when, heard that, when the I heard scene... that the other day at the supermarket, <laughs> isn't that scary isn't that when you're shopping and they're playing that oh, because yeah. that's like the, the new old people music they play at the supermarket. Oh, it's scary. I think what's interesting is if you pay attention to classic rock radio, um, there's so few bands that have, kind of nudge their way into classic rock radio and they're all the 90s uh, grunge bands like 
you'll hear Pearl Jam once in a while. You hear like one or two Stone Temple Pilot songs, um, but nothing is really like genreified uh, to the point where you can't like like that grocery store mentality where you'll hear Poison next to Justin Timberlake or some other modern thing. It's crazy. Because I remember when I was a kid, the music they would pipe into the grocery stores, like, you know, stuff from the 40s, you know, Bing Crosby, practically. So I always associate whatever they're playing at the supermarket, like, oh, this is for the old people in the store, for the nostalgia. <laughs> it just dawns on me, oh, my God, I'm that demographic now. <laughs> well, Kelly, I want to say something, though. I do think the idea of time and genre has changed dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years. So... I, I mean, my friends have children that are learning guitar now and they're listening to Nirvana like it's fresh. And that makes me happy. It makes me happy that the younger, the younger the generation, the more they're into like the physicality of playing guitar or drums or bass and all, all the, the, the hand instruments, as I like to call them. That's reassuring. All right. Well, we're going to yeah. go into the home stretch here. But before we do, people just need to know where to find you online. So this is, this is your chance to brag about yourself where do they find you and buy your music the plug uh well my website is thegreghoy.com there is another greg hoy he's a good friend of mine but um he's in the tech tech industry and i'm a musician um and then instagram the greg hoy twitter the greg hoy if you want vinyl um i you can click on bandcamp which is of course greghoy.bandcamp.com uh, we have a brand new EP that just came out this week and, um, we make a lot of videos. Some of them are, um, you know, uh, goofy fun. Um, once again, my eighties influence comes out sometimes when I make videos, so you can check that out on YouTube. And the new song is called highway one Oh one. Um, I think the video is coming out in two weeks. Uh, it just came out, uh, on Spotify on Tuesday. We well, are very prolific. How many records would you say you've put out? I think full length, probably 30 some uh, under different names over the years, although it was still, you know, all my songwriting. Um, I've focused mostly on Greg Hoy in the last few years. Greg Hoy and the Boys is kind of the name for the touring band. Um, it's a bit tongue in cheek because we I, I almost always have at least one uh, woman bass, usually the bass player, uh, so we can have some sweet harmonies live. Um, I kind of ditched the boys after the whole whatever with the proud boys movement that was happening for a few years there. And it just was like giving the word boys a bad sort of connotation. So, um, and honestly, Kelly, I think it's just easier to just say, Hey, I'm Greg Hoy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, when I think of the boys now, I think of that. What is that? Amazon series with the superheroes. Uh, love it. Do you like that show? It's one of my favorites. You know, I've never seen it. You might, if you're a horror fan, uh, it's, it's by far one of the goriest shows, uh, of, of recent oh memory. The, the, well, there you whoever's go. Doing then I'm totally there. Yeah. It, it, it'll like it'll it. be on, on, in my queue, but no, you know, do name yourself what you want to. I wouldn't be yeah. afraid of that. You know, you, you established your name first. So, Hey, yeah. Or, you know, or call yourself. I don't know, uh, Penelope. Just just <laughs> drop everything and start a band called Penelope. In a world where everyone's identifying in many different ways, I need to go the opposite and just say, hi, I'm Greg Hoy. <laughs> there you go. 
Although we were talking here. earlier, and you know when you think of a cool band name and then you search and you realize, you know, there's 10 other bands already named right. that. I 100%. mean, there's every band name in the world has been taken. I think that's why a lot of artists now, like, they'll drop, like, vowels or they'll double, like, a, a letter or they'll capitalize things. I think they have to do that because they probably came up with a great name and it's already taken. Right. Well, that one I said earlier, kind of jokingly, but the more I think about it, wouldn't Hive Mind be a great name for a band? It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I wonder if it's taken. I bet, I, I bet there's taken, 12 could, of them. You could double the V. H-I-V-V. Oh, How about Hive <laughs> with a Y? Like H-Y-V M-Y-N-D-D. Then you're getting into the issue of when someone tries to find your band, if it doesn't spell HIV, they would, might not be able to find it. And those are the kinds of things people really have to think about when they're naming their bands. Oh, God. This, this sounds like some pretentious <laughs> art school project. And, Kelly, that's why I go by Greg Hoy. <laughs> Wait a minute. How about uh, the name for a band, Pretentious Art School Project? Pretentious Art School. Could you call it PASP? P-A-S-P? Yeah, that would be like the, the, the nickname. PASP, we had a song yeah. a couple of years ago. We had a song called PBR, and it stood for Pretentious Bearded Radical. And it was all about, like, dudes that grew beards in the Northwest and thought they were just so, like, out there. Oh, my God. Now you're talking about my neck of the woods. I, see, I know this firsthand. <laughs> this is... And you know what? As you age and get mellow you say okay hipster beard man bun that's it's all cool <laughs> you do but just let it go right you just have you to. let it you go and everything comes in cycles and you know we all look back at what we wore in the 70s and 80s and but i think as you get older you can kind of see how quickly things are going to age you just know right off the bat oh that's going to look dated in five yep. years yep or five months. But, but you can't tell that to the, the younger person doing it. They have to find that out on their own. And you want you just them to. That's part of the fun. It is. And you just hope that it's not like, you know, a, a tattoo fad. Because that's a little harder. Right. Well, those 90s tribal tattoos are not aging well. No, they they kind of look like, to to the young people now, that's like the dad thing. Oh, yeah. My dad has one of those. Because you, you have, yeah, you have I, a kid now, right? You, you, you have a child? Yeah, we, we had a kid in July during pandemic, and it was pretty wild. And, and part of the reason um, I made the Cacophony record was because I realized I met, we made it in June. We, we booked the studio time. We realized it was socially distant being in a studio. And John Vanderslice, who owns Tiny Telephone down here, was cool with us going and spending a week there and making the record. But I did it because I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to be a dad. I should make a record about how I feel right now. <laughs> you know, like I need, a, I need to document the fact that my very pregnant wife and I have been stuck in a house for the last, you know, six months uh, just waiting to become parents for the first time. It was quite a roller coaster, especially thinking about, you know, we're talking about things like identity and stuff like that. It, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's definitely. A well, in 12 years, anything that you think is cool about yourself 
your child will will tell you very bluntly how uncool you are. <laughs> My wife and I were saying, should we use some sort of reverse psychology on her? Like, we'd love her to be an artist, so should we send her to basketball camp every year? <laughs> you know what you should probably do is is homeschool her. Right. And then, then she'll be so sick of you that, that, that <laughs> she want will to start a do... Band. Then she'll she'll probably just want to you know be work on you know be a lineman for the telephone company and just like you know replace <laughs> telephone lines. We um we would be fine with that I think I think of all the outcomes uh, that I would be fine with I think anything where she's working with her hands would make me very happy. You know that job where you get a giant ladder and climb up and chop the tops off of trees that are getting too tall. Right. Right. That's See, a good a job. A good, safe job like that. <laughs> well, as I jokingly say with my wife, it's going to be hard for her to work when we're not going to let her leave the house for 40 years. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, if that's the case, Especially when you... we'll teach her You're how to code. Those... You know, if she's going to stay home, teach her how to code and create some right. billion-dollar website so that you'll have a, a comfortable retirement for yourself. That's not, now you're talking. Is that like slave labor, child slave labor? It feels a little like we're getting, we're getting into Britney Spears territory. That's right. Well, she has to think that she's <laughs> doing it willingly. So I right. don't know. Maybe, maybe you can just... Um, you probably just have to anticipate by the time she's an adult, the world will be so radically different. And, you'll, you know, we'll all be so obsolete by then. We'll probably be, you know, frozen in a pod somewhere. All right. So, well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. We'll be like Steve Jobs, like with our brains in a jar. There you go. Oh, my God. Okay, five five final questions. Great. Um, so this new album, Highway 101. T- tell yep. me more. What 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 excited you about this? Well, what's something that's new that you've never done on an album before? That's a great question. And uh, Highway 101 is a good uh, a good question to ask about that. It's the first song I've written. I think where I tried to be 100% storytelling. And by that, I mean, I had two characters in mind, uh, loosely based on people and, and experiences, of course, because we don't, most of us don't write in a bubble. Uh, but the idea was about driving, um, you know, on the highway, taking a road trip with someone that you're following. It's probably the first time that you're falling in love with somebody and all the feelings that come from that and all of the, you know, emotions of, of, committing to you know kiss or the the first time you say i love you uh all kind of wrapped up in a road trip which to me i did a lot of road trips uh when i was young and the first time i came to california with my family uh i think i was 12 or 13 i want to say and and there's a specific moment that this song is inspired by and it wasn't me being in love it wasn't me being you know, with another person at all. It was just the feeling. And the feeling was being in a convertible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that, it's, it's weird that that song was written 10 years ago when I lived in New York. And it's just oh. now emerging. Uh, yeah, it's just now emerging. I feel like I'm finally ready to present it 
um, because of its singer song writeriness. It's it, it, the, the fact that I'm older now and, and, and I have perspective on things, it felt more uh, aligned with me being able to sing it and deliver it in a way that, that was true to me. Now, is this just a single song or is this a whole album? So it's what we did was we cut the vinyl album in two pieces. So this is side two of the vinyl album. It's called the, the it's an EP. So there's five songs on it and it's cacophony two on the services, but highway one Oh one is the single. And all of the songs are sort of a mishmash of what we're all going through now, coupled with some of like, I would say trying to make amends with oneself in realizing that, so many things that you used to think mattered really don't matter. Mm-hmm. Do you think part of this sentimentality is because of the birth of your daughter? That's a good question. It, I, all the songs were written about, a, well, a few of them were written older than that, but they all came before she was born. And we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. So there was a lot of unknownness. But I do think that's a great thing to think about, which was, I think I wanted to personally put to rest some ideas I had around, um, you know, just the, the, the pursuit of things that we all seem to, you know, get, we fall into this idea of like, um, intrinsic capitalism, uh, where it's like, you got to go, go, go and get, get, get when you're stuck in a house, you know, for six months and all you really have to focus on is your health and your mental well-being. So I think that was a lot of me letting go some of that like external, uh, you know, carrot on a stick. Question two. So I see on your bio that your mother had a subscription to the Columbia House monthly CD series. (laughs) Yeah. So when she did that, did she ever get to pick a record or did you just hog it all and order just all the things you wanted? Well, it started with uh, LPs, you know, back in the 70s, and it was all her. I remember Columbia House when they did LPs. Yes, very much. Yeah. And I think the beauty of it was she would get Barbara Streisand and Lou Rawls and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and, <laughs> like, the mix of stuff that came into the house was – uh, and my dad was into James Brown and like John Philip Sousa music. So I think like the, the idea of this 12 for a dollar or whatever it was, it changed, I'm sure with time, you really could, uh, curate quite a wide variety of things. And it's funny to think about you had, do you remember you had to pick a box that said you were pop classical, uh, mm-hmm. full R and B. Do you remember that? So you I do. like they would send you. Yeah. So up front, you got to pick what you wanted. But after that, it was up to them. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's very trusting. Right. So did you ever get like something where you go, oh, no, but then you thought, well, wow, I'm glad they sent this because I would not have picked this myself. Yeah, actually, uh, specifically, it was Herb Albert, a trumpet player, for those of you that mm-hmm. don't know. Which which my mom was really into his like whipped cream, other delights, 60s, 70s stuff. But I remember a record came called Rise. It was from 1970. I was going to say Rise from 1979. Yeah. Yep. Yep, 79. And, and I remember being blown away by that record. 
I was just like, what is this? It opened with like a theme that they used for the Olympic games. And then it, and then of course the song rise as most people know it, which is Biggie Smalls. Uh, they sampled it, you know, in the nineties mm-hmm. and uh, it, it came to prominence because it was in a, in a hip hop uh, song. So, but that record still to this day, I have it and I'll put it on and, and it's just, it's of its time, but it's, it's so great. What's so unique about that single rise, the, the title track, I think it went number one on the pop charts, the easy listening charts and the disco charts. Wild. I believe I mean, it. talk about a song that can cross so many genres that it can be mellow and danceable at the same time. Right. And it is sort of like both. And that's, you know, the thing I remember loving as a small child was every song had hand claps on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I used to this day, I've produced bands that have like literally said, can we not put hand claps on this song? <laughs> oh <laughs> I'll my be God. like, okay, sorry. <laughs> well, if you do a little YouTube search, I don't know if you heard it, but I think his follow up to that was he did a song called Rotation. And I don't know if the album was called that, but look, no, look it's, on, it's on Rise, the album. Oh, I know Is rotation on that right now. Okay, because yep. I, I, I like that song, rotation. the word rotation, and it, yeah, it's 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 rotation. I think it's track three on side one, if I'm recalling okay. properly. It goes rotation, row row rotation, shun. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, song. the echo. It's a very like. <laughs> <laughs> Proto jazz eighties. It kind of led to a lot of. I feel like that record led to a lot of that cheesy eighties like jazz stuff that came after it. But it, it of itself is a fantastic record. Oh yeah. Well, you gotta love the the evolution of smooth jazz. <laughs> Did you ever get into? Because I remember when jazz smooth jazz became a radio genre, and they kind of combined it with something called Quiet Storm which is sort of the sophisticated R&B, but, you know, Sade seemed to really propel that. Were you a Sade fan? That record was fantastic, Diamond Life. And her band was called, I don't know if you know, the band was called Blowback, her backing band, and they put out a record uh, that was, I believe it was mostly instrumental. If you haven't heard that record, it's fantastic. And it's just Sade's uh, backing band. Oh, nice, nice. Well, one of my all-time favorite live concerts on video is, I think it's from around 2003, her Lovers Live concert. Have not seen it. The staging of it, oh my goodness, and uh, just the way they place the band on stage and how, you know, the band is ever-present, even with her, you know, in the spotlight. She just does a really good job of just integrating her performance with her band. I feel like she's someone that if she came back today, she would sell out. She would sell out a tour. People love her still. People love her. Yeah, she she her, her stuff really does sound just as fresh today. Oh oh my yeah. goodness. Okay, well and we I, could talk about Sade forever. I'll, I'll just throw out one little <laughs> tidbit. In the early '80s, when I was teaching aerobics for the YMCA, believe it or not. Uh, I, nice. I put one of her, her early singles in. It was Hang On To Your Love from her first album. And I remember saying to the class, there's this new singer. I think she's from England. Her name is Sade. She's <laughs> really good. And then I think we did our warm-up or, or maybe our after stretches to her. Anyways, just had to throw do that you remember, out. Okay. 
Yeah. Do you remember how you heard that song for the first time? Was it like a BBC radio broadcast or something? You know what it was? It was a 12 inch single and they were kind of marketing her differently at first. It was even, I think, before, like, you know, that first album, she put out a couple of just singles first. And I think um, radio in the UK got her, but this was like her crossover into America was through uh, the clubs. So sure. I think I just I just heard about her. I'm sorry, I bind, uh, blindly bought this 12-inch single of Hang On To Your I... Love. And I thought, why not? But what was funny is at right. the time... They wrote this article, I don't know if it was Rolling Stone, but do you remember Alison Moyet? She yeah. was a For, singer she, at the same time. She played with uh, Erasure, right? Well, the guy, she was in Yazoo, and I yes. think the other guy, yes, didn't he right. go to Erasure? And then I think because of some legal thing in America, they had to call themselves Yaz or all these little legal weird band things, but sure. she put out her solo album around the same time as Sade, and they cut, they basically said, well, Allison has the better voice, but Sade <laughs> has the um, kind of better produced album. But they kind of were yeah. almost implying that Allison would have the huge career and Sade was a flash in the pan. Right. Little did they know, this... they, they, they ate their words. And this sounds a lot like the story of Madonna and Cindy Lauper, which was very yes. similar where Columbia had the big bet on Cindy Lauper thinking Madonna would flop and it went the opposite. Right. Cause Cindy does have a phenomenal voice. Fantastic. Yeah. In fact, I don't know. Have you ever heard her in concert? I haven't seen her live and you know, my dear friend is her guitarist. So the next time I get to see them, I have to go because I'll get to see my yeah. band as well. I, I saw her either, is either 85 or 86, and her voice live was phenomenal. So sure. she, does, she does not use studio trickery. She can really sing. Oh, okay. that first record's fantastic. It was the, um, do you remember the Hooters? Yeah. The band, the Hooters? That, mm-hmm. So the Hooters are the backing band on She's So Unusual. Oh, okay. Because that had an edge and to I it. And I do she, think, yeah, it, if you think about some of the songs on She's So Unusual that aren't singles, they're kind of heavy. Well, how about Money Changes Everything? Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. What a great song. And then uh, When You Were Mine. When You Were Mine, yep. That, Which wasn't that me, a Money Prince Changes... song? <sighs> was... I remember that. I had that LP. I think that may have been a Prince song because everyone was covering Prince in the early 80s. We were just talking about this. Like, I Feel For You by Chaka Khan. Like, right. What? Yeah. And, and, and what a fantastic, like, I remember getting that single. I had no idea who, that it was Prince. You know, there was nothing on it that said it was Prince's song. And I think that was one of the beautiful things about him is he would give these people songs and not want credit for it. You know, like the Bangles, uh, Sheila E., like, these people would do Prince songs yeah. that he wrote and sometimes gave to them, like Manic Monday. And he said, yeah, don't. Mm-hmm. I, think on, I think Manic Monday, he said, call me Christopher. I think that's what he's listed as, mm-hmm. produced by Christopher. Well, when he first worked with Sheena Easton, he used uh, an alias, you know, for his songwriting credit. Right. Remember you when he did look. the, the, the song? Oh, no, that was when... Um, I think he did that under Prince oh, he's on featuring that one. Sheena, 
But if one cheated That's earlier, right. um, Sugar Walls, I think he wrote for her. <gasps> That's such a Prince song now that you say that. Like, yeah. I can hear Prince singing that song with that, my sugar walls. Totally a Prince lick. That, yeah, no totally. Idea. And she Kelly, always speaks very me. highly of him. See? Sugar yeah. Walls and Prince. Now, mind blown. Yep. I love that song, too. No wonder. <laughs> I love all things Prince. When you're and a 10-year-old prepubescent, a Prince song comes on the radio. You pay attention. <laughs> well, I'm sure you know a lot about Prince, but you got to go back. Just his early hit, I Want to Be Your Lover. Just right out the gate, okay. I think around 19, one of his best songs ever. 100%. I agree. I want to be And that's okay. straight up. That's just a straight up great R&B song. But see, um, Dirty Mind, another great album. Controversy. Controversy, great album. But Dirty Mind, I think, in 1980, it wasn't his biggest yeah. hit. He started strong, but then Dirty Mind was kind of, I don't know if radio knew what to do with it. But um, he had that song, Head. Do you remember that? Right. Right. And, they would actually, and I think they the would label play, had, it kind of, well, it tanked, didn't it? I think that record tanked. It tanked. But for some odd reason, they would play head at the teen disco I went to. Wild. I mean, and, and then we were Weird. we were so young and naive, we had no idea what we were listening to. We just thought it had a good beat. Sure. Well, I, my wife was singing Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood to our daughter the other day. And I said, do you know what this song is about? <laughs> <laughs> but that was the 80s. They were kind of raunchy yeah. and innocent at the same time. I love the fact that everything was vague and you still had to lean in literally and figuratively to figure out what artists were saying to you. I love that about the 80s. And all of the you know, Pet Shop Boys and, and, and Boy George and, and Depeche Mode, all of the things that as a young kid, this was how I was learning about people interacting together. And you had to dig, you had to read between the lines, literally sometimes, to figure out what they were saying. Here's what's so hard to explain to a young person, that in 1981, Olivia Newton-John's song, Physical, was controversial, and, and some people even banned it, right. and MTV wouldn't play the video. Crazy. Right. The video with all of the uh, like big sweaty guys the, dancing the around. The bodybuilders, yeah. That and there wasn't like any nudity or it was just it's just so tame compared to what you see nowadays. Yeah, and also there was a sense of danger because it was also new. Like MTV was new. Seeing visuals with songs was new. I think a lot of it was just the newness of the medium. Well, when you look back at some of those, um, like, like, don't you love the low-tech ones that, that just had this DIY feel, and especially a flock of seagulls, Iran, oh, yeah. where they're wearing like with the, the black trash foil, bags. With the aluminum foil. <laughs> aluminum foil on the wall, and just it just looks yeah. like they went into the garage and whatever they could find, they, they built the set out of it. 100%. How about the video for Da Da Da? Did you ever see that one? Oh, God, well, I love that, Remember song. that song. I don't think I've ever actually seen the video, though. It's literally three dudes in a room, like a white room, and there's clearly some, like, really cheap green screen behind them. You should check it out. It's pretty great. 
it's kind of like exactly what we're talking about. But that was the thing. You, I still think a great visual, uh, it doesn't matter how much money or time you spend on it. If it's creative, people will pay attention to it. So what I kind of hated at the time, but I appreciate now, was just the really bad metal bands on MTV in the 80s. And again, yeah. most of them were good. But they had such this weird idea that that's all people wanted to see. Like, I think they, they just real they thought, oh, we just, you know, everyone who's watching us is a 13 year old stoner dude who, who right. has no discernment and, and wants nothing more than just watered down heavy metal posers. I think what's incredible about looking back on that is the homoeroticism of all those metal bands. Like, trying to come off like they're completely testosterone-driven sex maniacs. But watching it now, you're like, okay, guys, I think you had some things you had to work out. <laughs> like Twisted Sister being like this macho band. <laughs> well, Twisted Sister, I kind of give them a pass. I always, I looked at Twisted Sister as more of like glam uh, ugliness. Like, they were just ugly right. and they decided to put makeup on. Right, and they had a sense of humor. So I think the ones that didn't have a sense of humor that were just so overcompensating. But you know these, um, you know they, they had those tight black pants that Pat Benatar would wear, <laughs> but the guys right. were you know wearing them, not kind of realizing they weren't they weren't making a political statement, but they weren't you know as macho as they thought they were. <laughs> right, and all the leopard prints and like the le- animal prints. Do you remember Headbangers Ball? Oh, Ricky Rockman. Yeah. That was a thing. I remember we we loved uh when it Headbangers Ball went away ish and it became 120 minutes, which was more alternative stuff. That was like that's sort of like I remember that like eighties, late eighties cool kind of like took over for where hair metal was. And that became like the new norm. Like things like the Smiths and Joy Division. And like, we started following all that stuff when I went to school. And that was, that was way better than Headbangers Ball. Right. Well, if you had a magic wand and could restore MTV, how would you format it for, you know, 2021? That's a great question. I think I would add more videos uh, I think I would get rid of all reality programming because let's face it, uh, we're all living our own reality. We don't need to watch other people's. I might bring back uh, that show with Colin Quinn that was like a game show. That was pretty fun. I forget the name of it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And remote I, Control? What was it? Remote was Control? It remote? That was a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah. Kari Wurr was the, I remember the, the female lead of that show. I think I would I would focus more on uh, developing cool artists with cool videos and and really like there's a way to do that and still make a, a whole bunch of money. Um, if YouTube is any indication of how you can make money off of videos, I'm sure uh, a video channel could do the same thing. Oh well, that will lead us into question number four. Not n- not that we haven't you know asked you about a hundred questions. <laughs> <laughs> but what are your thoughts on the current state of YouTube? Because that seems to be the main place to consume music videos. You've got a lot of music videos up there. Is, yeah. Does it help your career? Does it help lead people to your website, to your music? 
or do they think, yeah. oh, I can just hear your music here. I don't need to buy the record. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I think that um, people at this point like multiple inputs for, you know, when they have their entertainment. They like having their eyes, their ears. Um, and I do think that videos, videos are fun. They're fun to make. Um, I, again, I kind of feel going back to talking about the, the reality shows with the singers, I think any way people come to your music is, is great. Like, I don't think it's worth slicing and dicing. You know, some people come up at shows and they want a vinyl LP and that's how they consume music. And I will, much like you and I, like I'll have a much easier time uh, probably having a conversation with them about why they love music because we have something in common right away. Having said that, I think what YouTube is going through right now is kind of crazy. And, um, you know, having the other side of my life worked in tech for a bit, there is this constant need for uh, growth and keeping people on your product that sometimes is, is super annoying. So I like playing records for my daughter. I like the fact that, you know, here's 20 minutes on a side and I know I have to walk over and stop what I'm doing and flip the record. I like all of that. Uh, but I also like, you know, when I go out for a walk or a run, being able to just throw on Spotify and, and hit a playlist and see what happens. So I, I think, I think it all works. I think that people should still pay attention to quality when they're making their videos, like keep it compelling. I think that's the one thing that sometimes I watch videos that people make and I think to myself, okay, you didn't put a lot of thought into this. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing YouTube has really pushed is live. I think Facebook pushes mm -hmm. that too, just broadcasting live. And I've seen some musicians embrace that and that can be fun. Although um, I'm more likely to see the recorded version after the fact, because I think it's hard to schedule Same. people, you know, drop everything, only see it, for, you know, during this time. Most people, you know, they want on demand. But for some people, live can be a special thing, especially if people can interact, like they can ask you questions. Maybe you're doing just a, an acoustic set and you can pause in between songs and, and read comments and answer people you know, live. Did, have you thought of embracing it that way? I've done a few. I, you know, I think it's one of those things where I don't know that it necessarily matters anymore. I mean, as far as how people are going to consume, like if I think about people that watch television shows or network television, they're still doing it on their own time and on their own terms. It's funny to think about a time when people would set a VCR to record something you know, that was live on television so they could watch it later. And then that became this idea of a DVR, which was a digital version of the exact same thing. And then pretty soon the industry's like, oh, people want to watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it. So for me, I mean, we've done some of the live casting things and it's always, you know, most of the time I get a link to it afterward anyway. So I just post it on the website and if people are interested in it, they can click on it and watch it. And it's, you know, in some ways it's like that uh, 2003 Chardet thing. You can watch it anytime and it still gives you that feeling of, the 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 interaction of that moment and, and you pronounce it correctly you say Chardet but I always say Chardet but Chardet. another funny thing on, on that first record that I got of hers underneath her name in in um parentheses or in brackets or something it it said it, it phonetically spelled her name s-h-a-r dash Day Charday, so people Americans, Charday. so they would know how to say that. Charday. Right. So everyone's oh walking God. around saying, "Have you heard this, Sadie?" <laughs> right. Or Sadie. It's, like 
say. It's like, it's like the Marquis de Sade made a record. <laughs> it's an ode. I wonder to how the many Marquis people in your audience will, will get that reference. <laughs> My audience, all two of them. I'll, I could just call them up and say, "Hey, the two of you that listen to my podcast, <laughs> what did you think? Do you when ever feel that way, though? Point. Well, you yeah. put in all the work and you put out a YouTube video, then you see the ticker, and oh god, yeah. Well, is that look, all? I don't do it. I think you got to let go of that. You do it for the sake of, you know. And I, I say that at practice all the time. Like I'll, I'll say to the band, like guys, we have to do this for the fan. Like we don't say we have to do this for the fans. Uh, and, and, you know, some of that is just where we are. It's just, there's so much content to be consumed, you know, and what grabs people. Well, I guess this leads to the final question, but I'll do a pre question first. You didn't put right. it on your, your, your dream mixtape, but so, so um, what's your favorite Peter Frampton song? Oh, Wow. Favorite Peter Frampton song? I'm not going to go obvious on this one. Okay. I'm going to go with a, a song he did. I think it was in the 80s. I think it was called Lion. Oh, Do you remember okay. that song? No, but I do you know he had lion. Okay. Lion. And I think that uh, Tony Levin was his bass player. I forget who was playing drums, but he had like a, a slight comeback record. I think it was the late 80s, and it had a couple of hits on it, and that was one of them. That's right, because he just put out like an autobiography, and I think he was going to do one last tour and put out a new album, but he's one of the singers that said, you know what, at my age, I'm going to go out now, and while I can yeah. still you know, be competent on stage, he might put out a few records, yeah. but he said, this will be the end of my touring. Yeah, and I respect that. Like, I don't know if you watched that Glenn Campbell documentary, If You Want to Cry. But it's oh, about yeah. his last tour, and he was suffering from, I think it was uh, some dementia type thing, and it was just totally heartbreaking. Yeah, um, that's a hard decision because you put so much of your life into it, and just when you think you're hitting your stride, to think, oh no, my, yep. you know, my body can't keep up with with my experience. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's that's part of the reason I want to tour now because we can number one, and I can, and you never know when it's like all of a sudden it's not gonna something's not gonna work. Your arms like not gonna be able to fret the fretboard, or your you're you're gonna lose your hearing like Huey Lewis, or you just don't know when stuff like that's gonna happen. Well, that sucks. Make it stop. Make you need to like they need to perfect bionic arms and. Just keep replacing your body parts as they go out. I don't know that I'm the demographic that's going to be able to afford that in the near term. Oh, my God. And then, well, in the near future, it'll just be bionic songwriting and just computer-generated sure. voices. Do you, do you believe that? I'm, they say that a computer can compose a song. Come on. There's there's a lot of uh, you can listen to the, the Google I think has a an AI songwriting team and there's a whole SoundCloud um, where you can just listen to all the the songs that the AI has come up with and some of them are like they fed it all Nirvana songs and here's a new Nirvana song and it's a little freaky it's just a little freaky I suspect the music industry has been relying on that for at least the past ten years <laughs> in different ways yes absolutely. There's a lot more hit songs than we realize that were written by a computer. You're probably right. 
I will not name names. No, we'll let it go. Let it go. Do you like Pitbull? I've known a few songs. Uh, he seems like a fantastic brand, and I respect that. I don't know that I think of him as a musician, but he does seem like a fantastic brand. Musician brand. You, as a musician who's paid your dues, do you ever get down when you see other people become famous and maybe they haven't paid their dues in the same way? Ah, I don't, and I say that with sincerity. I think the reason is I watched a lot of people burn out that got fame um, or die or got to a point where they were in a space where it looked like they were successful and they were still miserable, sometimes poor. Um, and I'm happy that the path I followed has gotten me to like talking to someone like you today where I can sit and like look at things from a, a perspective that is still full of buoyance and joy and like hope to keep going, you know? And I think that, mm -hmm. I don't know that fame and, 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 and finding, uh, adulation, uh, from one thing that you've done does, I don't know that it's the greatest thing for people. All right. Final question. So when you tour and, and you go to one of these road houses you were talking about, probably yeah. in the middle of nowhere, uh, probably where there's like, um, I don't know, ho hopefully like a indoor bathroom, but maybe there's like an outhouse. <laughs> we're talking we're talking really backwoods kind of roadhouse but i want you to yeah. describe uh the bar fight you're going to get into so you have to Ooh, say what 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 song you're playing uh who who's got you pegged in the audience as the outsider the words you exchange yeah. who throws the first punch and how you uh you turn it around and and he ends up buying you a drink and and buying your record I would say we'd probably be playing, um, hmm, what song will we be playing? Well, if it's a roadhouse, we might be playing some covers. And um, let's say maybe we're playing like, I don't know, Fire by Jimi Hendrix. And uh, maybe this person doesn't like classic rock. Or, you know, maybe he just doesn't like the look of my face. He comes up to me. Uh, I stop the band. I say, what's the matter? bro and he says something like uh i don't like you and i say well i like you i don't know you to not like you uh and i say what song do you want to hear and then maybe he names a song let's say he names like uh i don't know some uh new country song that i don't know i'll say well we don't know that song but for the rest of the people here we're going to finish this song and then i'm going to buy you a drink that's probably how it would go and if he did oh, come at me, I imagine, I imagine I would be like Keith Richards in that um, video from like the 80s where I would just take my Telecaster off and just like swing it at him like a bat. Do you remember that video? <laughs> no. <laughs> wow, you gotta look it wild. up. I feel like it's like a New Year's Eve show or there's balloons on the stage and it's just this famous video. Keith Richards has a cigarette in his mouth. This guy rushes the stage. Keith Richards, just as cool as can be, casually takes his guitar off, holds it by the neck, and hits this guy in the face. The guy goes reeling back. Keith Richards puts his guitar back on and keeps playing the song. It's one of the most amazing uh, ref refutes of a, uh, a bar patron or a, a show patron I've ever seen. I like that. No, you probably picked the best way to handle it. I was sort of hoping uh, when you confronted him, you would say, you know what? 
when you boil it all down, I'm really just a guy in a band. <laughs> and I might say that, too. Standing in front of you, just asking you to listen to my Waylon Jennings cover. <laughs> oh, Lonesome, my God. ornery, and mean. <laughs> all right. Well, his name is Greg Hoy. That's when he's not using about one of 20 different aliases. He <laughs> is a singer, songwriter, vinyl record producer, and just, I don't know, I should just call you media mogul, probably the, the <laughs> musical Steve Jobs, but really appreciating sharing all this. I think that you're our great hope for, you know, the people over 20 that, that, that can make a dent in this, this crazy music industry. Well, Kelly, I appreciate you giving me a voice on here. And I, I think it's great that you're, you know, supporting all these artists with your podcast. <laughs>